You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to this special Christmas edition of the BMJ podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. Coming up, Duncan Jarvis finds out how you can calculate how many portions of fruit and veg you need to balance out all that festive champagne. Basically, I'm trying to turn um, relative risks, hazard ratio things, into much more an idea of an absolute risk. What actually is the effect of, of these things? And the first way in which people have, have suggested you could do that is by turning a hazard ratio for all-cause mortality into a change in life expectancy. But before that, the clinical use of speed bumps. Speed bumps are a common sight outside many A&E departments, such as the basic lumps of concrete leading to the hospital I'm outside in central London. They've got a good public health record, reducing injuries amongst child pedestrians by 70% in some areas. However, a BMJ Christmas paper has shown they've also got a clinical value and are useful in helping diagnose appendicitis. I'm off to meet Mike Puttick, a consultant surgeon whose use of the speed bump test at Stoke Mandeville Hospital in Buckinghamshire, UK, has sparked the research. One of the questions we might be interested in from people is whether they get pain on movement. And we've noticed that in the last decade or so there's been a rise in the number of speed bumps and certainly at our hospital it's almost impossible to get there without going over a speed bump. So we found that it was a very objective question where you'd get a very specific answer. Did it hurt when you drove over a speed bump on your way here? We often got the answer yes and that's what triggered the interest into this area and hence the research and that allows us perhaps to think a little bit more formally and use it as part of the questions that we ask. The study we're talking about was led by Helen Ashdown. She's an academic clinical fellow in general practice at the University of Oxford. Here's why she saw doctors needed diagnostic help. It's important not to miss an appendicitis because without treatment the appendix can perforate and that can lead to a peritonitis. But equally, taking lots of patients to theatre who don't necessarily need that isn't good either. Um, and that's associated with significant morbidity. Hiya. Hello, come on in, have a Thanks. seat. Thanks. What can I do for you today? Um, I've got stomach pains and uh, I have had since yesterday. Okay, tell me about it. When did it come on exactly and how did it feel? Um, so I, I felt pretty rough yesterday and then last night I sort of had some uh, just, just really bad stomach pains to be honest with you and um, the same today and it just seems to be getting worse Whereabouts in Sometimes diagnosing appendicitis is straightforward and a patient has every symptom and sign in the, in the textbook but sometimes, particularly in the early stages it's much less clear cut and there are patients who will have symptoms similar to early appendicitis but which will just get better on their own, of their own accord in our study, for example, fewer than half of those patients referred to the hospital with possible appendicitis did actually go on to be diagnosed with it. Blood tests and scans can help, but there isn't one definitive test. It can only be confirmed for sure once the appendix has been removed and it's been looked at under the microscope for histology. At the end of the day, the doctor has to make a decision based on all the symptoms, signs and test results and put them together to assess the likelihood of appendicitis. Helen and her co-authors looked at every adult referred to the hospital's on-call surgical team with suspected appendicitis for six months. Soon after arrival, they got them to fill in a questionnaire, 
asking if they'd travelled over speed bumps and if they'd had any pain, and then compared these answers to the final diagnosis. About two-thirds of the patients had gone over speed bumps, and of the 64 patients who recalled travelling over them, 34 were diagnosed with appendicitis, 33 of whom said that they'd had more pain. And this gave a very high sensitivity of 97%, which makes this a very good rule-out test. So that is to say, if a patient thinks they've been over speed bumps and doesn't have pain, that makes it much more unlikely that they'll have appendicitis. But um, in terms of specificity, it didn't do so well. It had a specificity of 30%, which means that if a patient um, says that they've got pain, it definitely doesn't mean that they do have appendicitis. Lots of patients in our study who had pain on going over bumps went on to have pain that got better of its own accord or had other diagnoses such as a ruptured ovarian cyst, for example. Um, Can I ask how you got here this afternoon? Uh, My friend gave me a lift. I was going to drive, but it it hurt so much. Okay. Can I ask, did you come over any speed bumps on your way in? Uh, Yeah, I did actually. Yeah, they were agonising. Were they? Did (laughs) it actually hurt when you went over the speed bumps? Yeah, because yeah, every time the car, we didn't slow down, but (laughs) every time we went over the uh, speed bumps, the pain just got worse. Okay. So what's the pathological explanation for the test's effectiveness? Here's Mike Puttick again. Well, the, the classic sort of textbook test people used to do was for rebound tenderness. And certainly in my training, that went out of the door because it hurt patients too much. And we're taught percussion tenderness, which is really a clinical sign to try and elicit local peritonism or peritoneal inflammation. It makes sense to me that if you've got some local peritonism and peritoneal inflammation, it will hurt as you jolt over a speed bump. So if you like, this is a symptom that correlates with a clinical sign. Are you okay? It really hurts when you go for these speed bumps. Given that the speed bump test has a strong negative predictive value, how should it be used in practice? I was expecting when we started on this that it would be more of a test to diagnose for appendicitis, whereas actually the evidence is showing that it's more something to help rule out appendicitis. So it does mean that for people who the test is negative, provided of course they've been over a speed bump, um, we'll be much more confident in either sending them home discharged or perhaps bringing them back to one of our review clinics rather than admitting them. We're doing a lot of changing in the way we, we work Historically, everyone with right iliac fossa, abdominal pain, got admitted to hospital. And if you weren't going to operate on them, you would observe them. And we're increasingly trying to observe people at home. We have a system where we have a review clinic where we'll see people the next day. And any help we can get in who we can safely send home and not admit to hospital is good. We're operating on a very tight bed base. Resources are short for everybody. I think what remains to be seen is whether this is a test that's independent of other measures or or sort of codependent. There's a score that we use which is called the Alvarado score which is used to predict a likelihood of acute appendicitis and it grades people as having unlikely, moderately likely or very likely. And someone who comes up with a very likely score we're going to operate on. Someone who's unlikely we will probably discharge and I think the next work is to see is, is a test we can incorporate into that score or something we can add on or should run in parallel to that score. 
Well, I think that doctors who don't use it at the moment and live in an area where a lot of patients would have been over speed bumps should definitely consider incorporating it into their routine clinical practice, as we've shown that it's just as good individually as some of the more standard clinical features used, so things like migratory pain or rebound tenderness. The clinician really needs to use it in combination with other clinical features and test results to make a decision in relation to that individual patient. Whereabouts in your tummy was the pain? Uh, So so last night it was kind of different. So last night I had waves of sort of just stomach, general stomach pain. All over the tummy? Yeah, pretty much, yeah, sort of all over the tummy. And then um, this morning it's, it's kind of different. It's just moved to one area. Which area is it? Is it uh, on um, the right or the left, would you say? It's kind of down my right side. Okay. Yeah. It's kind of, yeah, more focused. And um, we already know that speed pumps have an important public health um, service to do in, in terms of injury prevention. But now we know that they have this clinical diagnostic value. Should we be lobbying councils to, to get them implemented outside hospitals? What do you think? I think for the diagnosis of appendicitis, that would be really useful. But unfortunately, patients who go to the emergency department don't necess- don't all have appendicitis so I'm not sure patients with spinal injuries or um, fractures would necessarily agree that putting speed bumps on the way into hospital is such a good idea. I've also got friends who reckon that their, their labour's been brought on by um, going over a speed bump so I'm not sure they'd agree either. Okay, is that the topic of your, uh, your next research paper? Yes, maybe that's, um, maybe that's the next project. <laughs> So there you have it, the humble speed bump, an evidence-based public health intervention and now diagnostic tool. Special thanks there to Tim Holt, Bethany Shinkins and Helen MacDonald for gamely playing our clinician and patients. I can assure you neither Helen nor Bethany actually have appendicitis. Now, we all know there are multiple actions we can take to improve or damage our health. Smoking or drinking too much alcohol, eating fruit and veg, eating red meat, doing half an hour of exercise a day, etc, etc. But it's very difficult to compare these factors, to know if that run round the park made up for those drinks after work. Now, David Spiegelhalter has come up with a way of doing just that. And as we enter the season of indulgence, Duncan Jarvis spoke to him about it. So David, you're the Winton Professor for the Public Understanding of Risk at the University of Cambridge. What is that? What does that involve? Well, I'm originally a statistician and I'm actually based in the maths department in Cambridge, for for goodness sake. And um, so I'm really interested in ways of communicating statistics and numbers and uncertainty and risk and everything a lot better. So um, I get asked by various people to advise on, for example, on the new cancer screening leaflets that are coming out. Mm. Uh, I've always had an interest in the reporting of, you know, your standard statistical epidemiological paper on risk factors and uh, how they might affect your health. And I, I, you know, get asked to comment um, on various news stories that come out and, and how these are reported is usually very poor indeed. Um, it's not always the fault of the researchers. Um, it's just that actually the statistical methods that are used tend to produce relative risk, things like odds ratios, hazard ratios, and I, you know, it's my bread and butter, all that sort of stuff. 
Um, but they're useless at actually in telling people what the importance of the uh, of the findings are. I mean, it, it is something that's hard for the general public and also for, you know, practitioners on a day-to-day basis to actually get a hold of um, how the relative risk translates into an absolute risk. I mean, this is it's a problem that goes beyond just uh, daily papers, isn't it? Well, I, I've worked in medical stats for sort of 35 years or so, and, um, you know, I often get asked, well, you know, why is probability and statistics so unintuitive and difficult? And it's, I just say, well, after all this time, I finally decided it's because it really is unintuitive and difficult. <laughs> <laughs> it's really tricky stuff. I find it difficult. You know, everybody does. And um, so I think this is really important. I'm just very fortunate now with this sort of funding I've got that I can spend time on at least trying out some ideas. And, you know, what I've put up in the Christmas BMJs is one idea. Absolutely. And that idea is a, a micro-life. Would you explain that for us? Basically, I'm trying to turn um, relative risks, hazard ratio things, into much more an idea of an absolute risk. What actually is the effect of, of these things? And the first way in which people have, have suggested you could do that is by turning a hazard ratio for all-cause mortality into a change in life expectancy. But the problem with that is that if you tell somebody, well, if you do this, you know, you eat, the, you, you know, you eat all the pork pies and <laughs> slob, whatever, thing, it's going to take one year off your life. Uh, people say, well, so what? You know, I couldn't care less about that. And in the paper, I got this lovely quote from Kingsley Amos that says, I'm not going to give anything up for the sake of another year or so in a, in a geriatric home in Western Superman. Mm. So, um, and, it, and this is, de- you know, deeply unimpressive. It's because of this, this well-known psychological phenomenon called temporal discounting that the things that are long time in the future, we don't care about so much. And, you know, the idea of another year being old and dribbly isn't, isn't you know, isn't very attractive. So, but, you know, so all I've done is to say, well, if you if you lose a year in your life over, say, 40, 50 years of adulthood, mm. um, that's the equivalent, actually, of losing a week every year, a uh, 50th, or half an hour every day, which is the 50th. Yeah. So suddenly something that doesn't seem that impressive is half an hour a day. And I use the example red meat because of a recent study that suggested, you know, about a hazard ratio of 1.13 for a, a burger or so per day. Mm-hmm. And um, so that roughly corresponds to a year off your life if you eat an extra burger a day. But also, um, you can say it's half an hour off your life every day that you've got this habit. It's equivalent to pro rata mm-hmm. over a lifetime habit. Now, that, uh, you probably don't, you know, it probably didn't take you that long to eat the burger and yet you're losing <laughs> that much of your life by doing so. Now that suddenly changes. I, I've tried this out on audiences so many times and you can tell just by the way they respond that it's grabbed something. And that's why I wanted to write this up because I tried it out first on people. And it's got a clear impact in bringing things to an immediacy. Um, and this is quite deliberate. I'm, I'm exploiting you know, the psychological um, impact of immediacy. In your paper, you have uh, a list of various um, things, smoking, alcohol, eating red meat that you mentioned, fruit and veg intake. And then you've worked out how many microlives that either cost you or um, you save a day. How were you able to go from a hazard ratio or whatever's reported in the paper to this new sort of microlife um, measure? Oh, well, I, but, you know, I had to do some calculations. Um, they're, they're fairly standard ones. You have to use life tables for England and Wales, and you have to say what what effect, first of all, a hazard ratio would have on life expectancy. And then you look at that total effect on life expectancy and work out um, actually pro rata what it works out as effect per day of a lifelong habit. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the number of micro lives that you gain or lose by having a day of that habit. Now, crucially, it is to do with lifelong habits. 
Um, this is not to do with one-offs. You know, who knows if you have one burger, you know, I've got a clue what effect it might have, or one, or one cigarette, or mm-hmm. who knows. So it's to do with life, lifelong habits, and of course, it's associated. It's only an association, and also it's averaged over many people. You might get run over by a bus. You know, you don't know <laughs> what will happen to you, and so it's averaged over many lifetimes and many people. Um, but it works out just purely as a pro rata rate. Um, so it's a, it's a metaphor. You know, this is, you know, this is not saying I can't say that uh, smoking two cigarettes will take half an hour of your life. Um, what I can say is that uh, multiplied over, if you, that is the, it, it, it's as if that is happening, mm-hmm. is the effect when, it, when it's applied as a lifelong, lifelong habit over mm-hmm. a population. So uh, it's a metaphor, not yeah. a direct statement of effect. Of course. Now, do you want this to be something that's very much sort of public information side of it? Or do you want researchers, when they're reporting something, to perhaps use microlives instead of a hazard ratio? Oh, well, hazard ratios are important. I always would want that. And I think that, you know, um, th- this is not everyone's cup of tea. I don't think everyone should do this at all. Uh, but I would, I'd love to think that um, when we talked about, you know, I haven't used radiation, for example, but that's an interesting one. If you looked at radiation exposure, um, you know, it, it can be put on exactly this scale. And what we would hope is that um, it could lead to a slightly more rational debate on um, actually what the effects of radiation, either through radon or through through exposure from Fukushima or something like that, um, could you know what is the actual effect compared with other daily exposures mm-hmm. that we might either choose or not choose to have, like air pollution or smoking, whatever. And so it, it's just providing a comparative scale which allows you to make what might be slightly uncomfortable comparisons. Um, I, I, I'm not sure. It's very, I think it depends how this goes down. Um, I, you know, I, I would hope that people do find this interesting and could think of it as another way to express um, the, you know, the effects of expo- environmental exposures and, and, and lifetime behaviours. So I, I think that I hope that it might actually catch on and could be used in public communication. Absolutely. I mean, I think it is interesting there to uh, what stood out for me was that comparative ability. It sort of makes things much more intuitive. So do you hope that this will encourage people to perhaps, you know, if they smoke, um, eat some more fruit and vegetables or do some exercise because they'll be able to perhaps quantify how much of a benefit that's making? Well, I must say, just for myself, uh, you know, maybe I'm getting old and a bit, you know, careful in my old age but I, I found this you know is quite influential on, on me I think it might actually even change my behavior and certainly in terms of the benefits I, I found the um, you know the first 20 minutes of moderate exercise which is the government guidelines I was staggered at the effect of it compared to being a complete slob you know sitting on the sofa just getting up and moving around for 20 minutes a day in a moderate way it was giving you two microlives an hour a day mm. yeah, quite extraordinary and the, and the fruit and vegetable intake you know actually from the EPIC study that measured blood vitamin C to check that people really were getting in their, their fruit and five fruit and veg a day. Mm-hmm. Well, that's getting us four microlives, two hours a day. That's, that's extraordinary. That's, that's, you know, just about the difference between being male and female, which yeah. is four microlives. So j- just being male, you know, I've, I've got, just being a male, I've lost four a day for <laughs> that. Um, I'm being punished for that. So, but I can make it up again by having a, a fairly decent diet. So um, I, I, I found this really quite, quite encouraging. Well, David, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. And if you want to see how much of your lifespan you've knocked off or gained recently, you can using our Microlives calculator. A link to that is on the podcast page. 
That's everything for this edition, and this year in fact, as we'll be taking a break next week. From everyone at the BMJ, have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. You'll be hearing more from us in 2013. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.